welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. Last evening after the second service, I was back in the hotel. I called my wife. We live in Colorado, north of Denver, about an hour near a town called Fort Collins. Excuse me. She said, how did it go? That's always the question. I said, you know, this is a terrific, welcoming congregation. I've heard about you for a lot of years, and now I get to see you eyeball to eyeball. And I said, "It's, it's a wonderful congregation. So I bring you greetings from my wife, Ruth, as well. Um... Just so you know, that book, Known Finding Deep Friendships in a Shallow World, was written by Ruth and me, and I use a lot of words, and she can say in four cents, four phrases, what it takes me 14 pages to say. She would say, I'm an extreme extrovert, she's an introvert. So, so if you're an introvert, if, if you don't, you know, like small groups, or you don't like big groups, or you don't, you know, whatever she, you know... I think you'd find it interesting because she says Dick likes to use a lot of words. He he thinks people want to know what he's thinking. And uh, she says stuff like that. And so there you go. You don't know me from a post, okay? I'm on my 76th trip around the sun. And uh, you can either say you're 75 years old or you can say you're on your 76th trip around the sun, which is rather cool, high-speed living. And, the, and the, the, you know, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. You don't have to have 150 IQ. But if you've gone 76 trips around the sun, you should have learned something. And so perspective is one of the things that pops up. I like the idea of perspective. I mean, if I just come just a few feet over here, I'm not very far, maybe three and a half feet, but it's a different perspective. If I were to step down there or go down there, that would be a very different perspective for both of us. But how about preschoolers? Preschoolers have a totally different perspective. They're two and a half foot high people wandering around in a world of kneecaps. They're down here wandering. (laughs) Chairs are up here. Tables are up there. And um, we have, Ruth and I have been married 54 years. We have four kids and, and 12 grandchildren. The eldest now is 26 and the youngest is almost two. The 26-year-old, when she was three, we were visiting at her home in California, and um, early in the morning, she climbed up into our bed, like 5.30. Well, if you're a parent and your preschooler climbs up in your bed, you're going, oh, no, you know, and they're probably wet. And uh, she, (laughs) she climbed up in our bed and said, let's talk. Well, if you're a grandparent, it's kind of cool, you know, because you don't have to deal with the 
grand, you just fill them full of sugar and send them back to their parents. That's what you do. And so I just, I said, okay, what do you want to talk about? She said, I'm going to have a baby sister. Well, her mom was pregnant. They didn't know the sex of the child. They said, it could be a brother. She said, yeah, but I want a sister. I said, okay, why don't we think of some names? She said, okay. I said, why don't we call the baby Boogalooney? She looked at me. I said, how about Zonga Bonga Wonga? She started to chuckle. I said, why don't we call the baby Yabaslabovich? And she just howled and said, oh, Grandpa, those are boy names. <laughs> what do I know? I don't, you know. Little kids just see, have a totally different perspective. They see things. In, that was a good story, wasn't it? I love that story. They just see things in a totally different way. And if you think little kids see life in a different way, you ought to try Jesus. You talk about a disturbing person in terms of what he says, who sees life from a totally different angle. I love what Dorothy Sayers, the British mystery writer who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, said some years ago from England. She said, those who crucified the Christ to do them justice did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary. He was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. I, um, I didn't quote the last part in the other three services, but I'm going to quote the last part for you. She goes on, she's speaking from the Anglican church in the 1940s in England, and she says, we've efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old women. First time I read that, I said, man, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> it's wonderful to be in a congregation where the Lion of Judah's claws have not been paired. Okay? As they, as they, as they say in Australia, good on you. Okay? And so Jesus comes to redeem mankind. And in that process, at the end of the day, he says to his dozen followers the most important things. He's... he's He's having dinner with the boys, okay, Passover meal, on his way to the cross the next day. And if you're going to die, you say the important things. And this is what he says to his followers. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you, John 15. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's spouse. Doesn't say that. To lay down one's life for one's kids and grandkids. Doesn't say that. To lay down one's life for whom? One's friends. Jesus defines love language in friendship terms. Love is an amorphous word. It's an ambiguous word in our culture. I love thin crust pizza. I love ice fishing if I'm from Minnesota. Apparently, I, you know, I don't know about ice fishing, but, I, but I, I, love, I love the Pacific Coast. I love the Rocky Mountains. I love God. I love Ruth. It's an amorphous word. And Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you what the greatest kind of love is. The greatest kind of love is to be a friend, to lay your life down for a friend. Pastor Rob last week teed up this whole thing, talking about our culture and how the internet and digital age can take you wide, but it can't take you deep. And, and that's the theme of the book, Known, in some ways. And, and in framing that, we were built for deep. There is too much, we can't know all there is to, most of the stuff there is to know in the world, I don't know. 
But to go deep with a few is what we're built for. Jesus says it where two or three are gathered, I show up. Maybe that's the most powerful number in the world, where two or three. Maybe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit see two or three of us together and say, well, that looks like us. Why don't we go there? I don't know. That could be just a faux heresy. I just thought I'd throw that in. That was also unique to this service. I didn't say that before. But Jesus defines love in friendship language And a friend, I would define a friend as someone we really know. Did a survey with some university students, several hundred, and they came back finishing the sentence this way, a a, a friend is a person who sticks with you in every circumstance. A high percentage of the young people said that, okay? So when do we start knowing? I would submit we start knowing someone when we hear the person's story. Everybody has a story. We... We got the family together. We now have 23 people in the family. Four years ago, we got them together in San Diego for a week's vacation that Ruth and I paid for. Because there's a principle when you're a grandparent with adult children, if you pay, they will come. That's just (laughs) how it is. And all the adult kids said, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be, isn't it? Well, apparently. And so they, they just, you know, they came and all the grandkids and we piled in the cars to go to lunch one day and Sammy, who's now a college freshman, who's 14, he jumped in the back seat with his sister as we drove out of the driveway to drive 10 miles to this restaurant. He said, Grandpa, tell us a story from your childhood. Well, that's a terrible thing to ask a grandfather because they'll just jump in. I got so engrossed in the story that I overshot our exit by 16 miles. <laughs> 16 Why do kids or grandkids say, tell me a story like that? Because when you tell me your story and I'm connected to you, I learn who I am. It's about my identity, if you will. So what is it about story and the result of story that draws us in? Ursula K. Le Guin, who's a sci-fi writer, said this, there have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. Why? Because God puts story at the heart of creation. This is a storybook, okay? This Bible is narrative all the way through. There are, there's one section that's songs. It's called the Psalms. There's another place that has little pithy sayings called the Proverbs. But the Old and New Testaments are full of story and then a bunch of letters. It's people sharing where they are, what's going on, how they see God, what God is speaking through the book. And... God apparently chooses to tell his story through people. So this, you can find yourself in this book a lot of places. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of stories and you can identify when you go through here. And and the challenge is, whose story do you tell? when, When he wants to talk about faith, like in the faith chapter of Hebrews, he uses somebody like Noah. Noah, this ancient person who built this huge boat because there was going to be a flood. He didn't know about that. But it took him decades to build this boat. You can see generations of teenagers saying, after school, let's swing by crazy Noah's. See how he's doing with that thing. Noah, how's it coming? Good. What are you building? I don't know. I don't know is a great faith statement, but we'll keep that for another time. The, The point is Abraham, the father of the faithful, created a whole people. And then there's Moses who led a whole people out of slavery. You say, yeah, but they're special people. You know, they're so godly. And Well, Noah had a little problem with booze. If you haven't read that part of the story, you need to go read that part. Then there was Abraham who tried to pass off his wife as his sister when he was in Egypt so that Pharaoh wouldn't hit on her. And then there was Moses 
who like killed a guy. You say, but it's a justifiable homicide. Well, not if you're, guy that, you're the guy that got killed. You know, that's not… Just a, you say, well, apparently they're flawed people. Those are the only kind of people God has to work with. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're looking for a perfect person to tell your story through, you probably have to send Jesus. So when he tells the story, he tells it through people, and in that process, Jesus comes. I love what Madeline Engel, the author, says. She says, Jesus was not a theologian. He was God who told stories. And one of the great stories he tells is in Luke 15 about a, a father with two boys, and the youngest boy asks for his inheritance. Remember that story? We call it the story of the prodigal son. It's really the story of the gracious father. And the younger kid says, I like my inheritance, which is in effect saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Takes it, messes up, fouls up the whole thing, wine, women, and song, ends up slopping hogs in a far country. If you're a Jewish kid, it's like the end of the world. Says he remembers his father's house, comes back. His father sees him coming. I don't know how many nights the old man had watched looking down the road, and he sees that familiar walk, and it says that the old man starts running. He's an elder. Elders don't run. They let the sinner come and grovel. They don't do that in that culture. Seriously, they, they don't do that in that culture. The community wants to kill the boy because he's shamed not only his family but the whole community. In a tribal culture, that's how that works. And the father runs to him, I believe, to protect him and redeem him. And the boy says, I just want to be a slave. Don't I? And, you know, he's going on, just make, just get. And the father, in my mind, he puts his hand on the boy's mouth, said, you had your time, you had your shot, this is mine. Give him everything back. Give him the family wealth, signet ring, give him the sandals to show he's not a slave, give him the robe, we're going to have a party. The community is saying, kill him, and the father throws a killer party. That's what he does, okay? And when you come to Jesus, yeah, you can clap for that if you want. When you come to Jesus, heaven has a killer party. That's how that works. Here is this story. If you had the worst father in the world, this father is better. If you had the best father in the world, this father is better than that one. So when in a culture we have a hole in the place oftentimes where fathers are and where grandfathers are, this Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you about mine. I'm going to his house. Would you like to go with? There's something about the story that Jesus tells. And he says, your story essentially is one of a kind. When I look at it, I think your story is unique. Out of seven and a half billion people. You say, how do you know there's seven and a half billion people on the planet? Well, I looked on Google, so clearly it's true, you know. <laughs> seven and a half billion people, your story is unique. Before you start telling me your story, you get an A. Halfway through, you still have an A. At the end of your story, you still have an A. It's the one place in your life you don't have to compete. I need some place in my life where I don't have to compete. And when you tell your story, it adds to my life in unimaginable ways. When I do that, It helps me understand not only who I am, but who you are. You say, but my story's not interesting. That's not the point. The question is, is it true? 
because story is the fuel for friendship. And Jesus thinks friendship is huge, apparently. It's like one of the last things he said. So when you look around you today, you see all these people sitting here, but I don't see just people sitting there. I see them as walking books. This has animal skin on it, this Bible. You check something out from the library or get it from Amazon, they ship it to you. It's got tree skin on it. But you have all of these stories sitting around you with human skin on it. And those are the interesting ones because they've got passion and anger and joy and frustration. I love, I love the, the incident that happened in Southern California. An older guy in his 80s was taking a class in what they called elder hostel. Elder hostel is a way where old dudes like me can go back to school uh, and just audit classes. And it was a history class. And they were talking about D-Day, June 6, 1944 in Normandy. And the teacher was using the longest day and uh, in, in telling what happened. You know, the largest armada in naval history, 5,000 ships, including the Higgins landing craft. If you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, that scene, he says, I don't think anybody in the first wave got off the beach without being killed or wounded. And she was going on and saying this, and this old man in the back of the class raised his hand and said, you know, I, that's, that's not exactly how I remember it. And 30 faces turned to him because that was going to be the story. Stories with skin on them are the most powerful stories in the world. And they're free. And you don't have to check them out or take them back or whatever. So the question is, how do you tell your story? Well, you tell it in bits and pieces. Uh, you don't know me, as I said, from a post. I'm the old dude up here. And I, so I was born in Alameda, California three months after Pearl Harbor, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1942. Anybody here know where Alameda, California is? We got a few people who know, you're my people, okay? I was working with some Japanese leaders a few years back when we were in DC and we were out in Japan at a hotel. We did small groups. They said, these Japanese folks will never do small groups because they're so clothes structured. I said, let's try it. And I was working with a, a Japanese gentleman. I said, Koji, I asked him my standard question, Koji, where were you born and brought up? He said, I was born in Tokyo, Dick. Brought up in Tokyo my whole life. And where were you born, Dick? I said, Alameda, California. And a Japanese man in that group said in perfect English, that's near Oakland, isn't it? And I said, yes, how did you know that? He said, because that's where IBM trained me. And he came up to me after the session, walked straight up, and I was speaking to the president of IBM Japan. And we were buds, because he knew where Alameda was. Bam, just like that. You see, because when you start telling your story in bits and pieces, it's a Velcro ribbon to which other people can attach. That's how it is. It only comes out in bits and pieces. So if I say to you, what did you do for fun as a kid? Do we have any baseball players here? You know, when you were a kid, you played baseball. How about hopscotch? Any hopscotch people here? Any ice fishermen? I've heard about this. Yeah, ice fishermen. Hockey players? We got hockey players? I asked this question one time. A lovely blonde lady in the front row raised her hand. We were in a marriage seminar. She said, I rode pigs. I'm from Oakland, California. Pig has a whole different content. I said, where did you grow up? She said, I was brought up on a farm in Iowa. I said, how do you ride a pig? She said, well, you climb up on the trough. When one of those big 400-pound sows come, you don't want ones just had a litter because they're mean. But they stick their noses in the trough, you jump on their backs, grab their ears, and off you go. 
And I'm going, dude, said, people are laughing like this. I said, just, just for fun, anybody else here ever ride a pig? And five guys came out of the closet. They just, <laughs> just for fun, anybody here ever ride a pig? Any pig? We got pig riders in the second. We, look, we got pig riders. All, what a gold mine of pig riders. There, I'm telling you, there's a whole fraternity and sorority of swine sitters anonymous around the world. You said, hey, I came to church. What's this with the pig riding and all that kind of stuff? You got a kid that's slopping pigs. You got people riding pigs. What's the, what's the thing with, what does this have to do with the good news about Jesus? Nothing. If you don't want to love me like Jesus loves me, because he knows my whole story, good, bad, and ugly, and he still wants me. That's the good news. He knows, and he still wants you. So when you share your story in bits and pieces, people start connecting with it. So when I say from age 5 to age 28, I was a severe stutterer. I stuttered horribly or, or well, depending on how you view that. <laughs> Any of you guys here who ever had a peach, speech impediment or stuttered, you get it. You feel like it's a personality disorder or something, or I did. Or if I tell you that after 29 years of marriage, my dad walked. So I come from a broken home. Those of you who come from broken homes, instantly we connect, we understand. I can talk to university students. Half the crowd will connect when I say that statement. When you share your story, when you tell the truth and you're a little bit vulnerable, we start understanding that we're all in this together and that Jesus knows better than we do. So you say, so, so what? What if I tell my story? What does that do? Well, what that does is it lets me know where to love you. It lets me know how you are and who you are. And when we start doing that, affirmation comes to mind. Affirmation is a $4 word that means I like you. Let me just tell you four things real quickly, okay, about affirmation. The highest form of affirmation, in my way of thinking, is words to God about you. We call that prayer. When you come to me and say, Foth, I'll pray for you, that's the highest affirmation you can give me. I'm just going to illustrate this with Jesus and Simon Peter. I'm not going to read the text, but the text will be on the screen. And uh, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, all of you, but I have prayed for you. I've talked to my dad about you. It's the, he, he knows he's going to fail. He knows he's going to mess up, and he still says, I'm talking to my dad about you. We're going to work this. It's going to be okay. I, um, I'm 17 years old in 1959. Elvis is in Germany. Cuba has just taken, or Castro has just taken Cuba. I've said that three times, and I've, I don't know what that is in my head. Castro has just taken Cuba, and I'm a 17-year-old freshman at Cal Berkeley. I'm a church kid, 17 years old at Cal Berkeley. I was sowing my wild oats. By today's standards, there weren't many oats, and they weren't very wild. But I would get on my 150cc motor scooter in Oakland and ride 10 miles to Cal Berkeley's campus. My dad was a pastor, and so I'm just, and, you know, I ride my motor scooter every day. Some of you guys are Harley guys, but I just want you to know that Vespas are coming back. I just want you to, so I drive home one day, I pull into our front yard, I go into the house, and I was raised with a theology that Jesus could come back any day like that. And I walk into the house. My mom's a stay-at-home mom. And I walk in there. 
and I can't find my mother. That's a terrible moment if you've had that kind of theology and you can't find your mom. It's just a terrible moment. And I wandered into their bedroom and I heard something in the walk-in closet and I walked over there, put my ear by the door and I could hear my mom. She was on her knees and she was praying a mother's prayer, something like this. Oh God, don't let Dick do anything more stupid than he's already done. And I, she's in heaven now and I'm here, so apparently it worked. You know, there you are. Ruth and I spent 15 years in Washington, D.C., worked with hundreds of leaders behind the scenes, Pentagon, the White House, Commerce, Justice, all these places. Always would say at the end, Senator, Congressman, is there anything that we can pray for? There's some people out there who pray for those in authority. They think it works. Never in 15 years, believer or unbeliever, had anyone say no. There's something about prayer that calls to me. I know it's right even if I don't get it and all of that. That's how it is. Words to God. Words to you about you. At one point, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And he says, I'm going to call you the rock. And on that name, I'm going to build the church. Cephas, Peter means rock. Now, Peter was not, he was a natural leader, but he wasn't a stable guy. You know, he promised more than he could produce. He was like this. You wouldn't want to give him one of those Minnesota multiphasic psychological tests or whatever that thing is. He he wouldn't score high on that, I don't think. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to call you the stable guy. And you can see the other 11 guys going, dude, what's that about? He was either speaking something into Peter or, or calling something out because he became that person. When you speak words that are positive to somebody, there's something profound about that. I was in a group training session in St. Louis many years ago, 300 people in the room. We did small groups and all morning, six people in a small group telling their stories through various instruments. It's amazing how close you can feel to someone when you ask the right kinds of questions over three hours. Came back at noon and they said, we're going to change the structure of the, uh, of the group. We're going to make it in a horseshoe and in the open end of the horseshoe, we're going to put a chair and each of you will rotate through that chair and the other five people will affirm you on the basis of what they heard in the morning and they'll affirm you in one of three ways, a positive quality, you're gentle, you're deep, whatever, a color or an animal, a good animal. And all you can say in response is thank you. A young man, 19 years old, was the first one in the chair. A young girl in our group, 19, said to him, I see you as a dog. I said, great. And she said, no, no, no. I have a a golden cocker spaniel. I love my dog. He's got big brown eyes. You've got big brown eyes. I like to hold him on my lap and pet him. And the kids say, now we're talking. You know, we're, (laughs) I'm all over that. You know, here we are. And second person in the chair was a 28-year-old Christian education director, a woman who had received a bad critique her first year. And they sent her to this to learn social skills. She did not want to be there. She was grousing and grouchy and chain smoking all morning. She would just, and she sat in the chair and the same girl said to her, I I see you as a vibrant person. I see you as the color of your dress. It was fall and it was reds and oranges and golds and said, it reminds me of a fire in my fireplace. I'd like to take you to my home on a snowy winter's night in Rockford, Illinois, and sit in front of the fire and drink hot chocolate and eat popcorn and just get to know you. And the woman took the cigarette out of her mouth and dropped it on the floor and stubbed it out and said, say that again. 
said, I see you as a warm and vibrant person. I see you as the color of your dress. It reminds me of a fire in my fireplace. I'd like to take you to my home on a snowy winter's night in Rockford, Illinois. Sit in front of the fire, drink hot chocolate, eat popcorn, just get to know you. By the time she finished the second time, tears were streaming down this young woman's face. She said, never in my whole life has anybody wanted to take an evening just to get to know me. I don't know where the grouchy woman went. I have no idea because the one that was there that afternoon was a totally transformed person. It was like coming to an altar and having Jesus touch your life, bam, like that. It was an unbelievable thing. Words to you about you. The third thing is actions toward you. Actions toward you. You say, words can be cheap. Take an action toward me. There's that scene in the garden where they come to get Jesus and Peter wants to defend God and he whips out a sword, if you will, swipes at a guy with a sword, not even had very good aim, takes the guy's ear off, you know. And Jesus, I, I love the way it's said, I think it's Luke that says that Jesus, you can almost hear Jesus go, oh boy, yeah. He reaches out and touches the guy's ear and heals it. Peter does not need an attempt at murder charge. He's got other issues, you know. <laughs> you can see that guy who got his ear cut off dragging Peter to the judge. This guy tried to kill me. He said, what did he do? He cut my ear off. Well, which one was that? Well, it's this one. And the judge says, case dismissed, lack of evidence. <laughs> That's what Jesus comes and does. He takes care of the evidence so that all the junk in my life gets taken care of and I can stand in his presence as whole. That's what he does. The third thing is, or the fourth thing is, actions toward your world. All of us get up tomorrow morning to go give our lives away for a dollar or to study or to play whatever we do for a living. We do that and when somebody asks, asks us about that, it doesn't make any difference whether we're a truck driver or a school teacher or astrophysicist. When somebody asks about my world, what I'm giving my life to, there's something profound about that in some way. And I walked into the house. I'm 30 years old. I'm a church planter at the University of Illinois. Ruth and I have four children under the age of seven. And uh, Jesus and Peter, it's Jesus coming to Peter after the resurrection, and they, you know, they went fishing again, didn't catch anything, and Jesus filled their nets. He walked into their world. So I walk into the house, and Ruth is there, but I'm just tired. And it's back for you older guys. It's, it's back in the day of three-piece polyester suits. And I tossed my briefcase on the couch, and I fell belly down on the front room floor. I mean, I was 30 and I was tired. You can be tired when you're 30. Not nearly as tired as when you're 75, but tired. I fell belly down on the front room. Well, if you have teenage kids and they see that, they'll go find mom and say, Dad, weirded out. He's, you know, something you need to call somebody. He's, but if you have little kids and you fall belly down on the front room floor, what happens? They jump on you, yes, because the giant has laid down. I'm two and a half times taller than a preschooler. That's, I'm six feet there, two and a half. That's like a 50, relatively speaking, a 15-foot high guy walking in here saying, how you doing, Dick? I'm good. Have you cleaned your room yet? No, but I was just going to. You know, I was just, there, but when the giant, when vertical power goes horizontal so you have access, you don't have to be afraid. That's what happened at Bethlehem. God the giant laid down in Jesus. Nobody's afraid of a baby, and he gives us access. That's what happens. So we started playing the trip game. That's where you spread eagle yourself, you're laying on your belly, and the kids run around, jump over your arms and legs, and alternately you raise your arms and legs and knock them down. You say, that's a weirdo California game. No, little kids love that game. They don't have far to fall. Bam, down they go, whack. Down they... Pretty soon, wham, one of them goes into the couch, 
and they start crying. So, okay, got to stop. Somebody got hurt. And they're saying, no, no, do it some more. <laughs> Pretty soon they run off. I get up. I sit on the couch. And Ruth's been in the other room all this time. And she walks in and sits down beside me and puts her arm around me and starts sort of, you know, snuggling and fooling around. And I'm sitting real still. I, I looked better then. I was slim and had dark hair. And she said, uh, I said, why are you doing this? I said, don't stop, but why are you doing this? And she said, you played with the kids. I said, they're my kids. She said, no, 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 no. They're your kids when you come home. You're out being God's man of faith and power, having business lunches, learning new stuff, going to the university. I'm here at home with four kids under the age of seven, and I go out in the back, and I find a pile of clothes, and I don't know where the three-year-old is that had those clothes on. They, why is it kids do They take off their clothes and go places. Is that true? Does that happen in Minnesota? Even, even with the big mosquitoes, they go places with, you know. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's true about your experience, Right? She said, Dick, when you come home and play with the kids, what you are telling me, I'm giving my whole life to these kids. You're telling me that what I do is valuable? When you come home and play with the kids, you're saying that I'm a worthwhile person? When you come home and play with the kids, what you're really doing is loving me. I didn't know that. I thought I was just knocking the kids into the couch. I had no idea. I wonder if that's what Jesus means when he says, by this will all men know you're my followers if you play with my kids. But it doesn't exactly say that. It says if you love each other, exactly the same deal. Life group it, whatever it is, you play with my kids. You say, do you have any illustration, anybody who would do all four of those things? And I'm done. I just got a couple of minutes here. Anybody who symbolizes prayer for you, compliments toward you, actions toward you, actions toward you. I have several, but one I'll just tell you about, and then I'm done. I was 10 years old. I went to a kid's camp, first kid's camp I'd ever gone to. There was a guy there named Roy Blakely, 38 years older than I, or 28 years older than I. He was a pastor who loved kids, and he gave three weeks a summer to kids' camps. I walked in. Here's a guy dressed up like an army guy with fatigues and a helmet, 38 revolver, which is always good for kids' camp. And, <laughs> and he was a ventriloquist. He had a dummy named Jimmy. And I sat every night right over there on the front row because I liked Jimmy. And, and Roy told us stories about Jesus and other morally impacting stories. And the way he talked to us he talked to us like we were real. We weren't just kids. We were real people. You could tell he loved us. And he, and he taught us the books of the Bible to a song. Come, let us Christian try to tell the books of the Bible we know so well. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st St. Samuel, 1st St. Kings, Chronicles and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Guy, Zechariah, Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, hey, you know that song. And eight, eight years later, I walked onto a Christian college campus like North Central University here, and they did a little Bible test. And it said, how many books of the Bible can you write down? And all around the room, you heard kids going, na 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 When you affirm a 10-year-old 
You never know where it's going to go. But it'll be good. He came to me in the cafeteria line because the night before, the dummy had talked to me. Hi, Dick. How you doing? I said, I'm good. And the next day, I'm the big guy on campus. They didn't have Sesame Street or Electric Company, any of that stuff. Hey, there's the kid the dummy talked to. You know I mean? <laughs> I'm standing in the cafeteria line. Roy comes up says, Dick, thanks for sitting in the front row. I said, well, I like Jimmy. He said, well, Jimmy likes you. He said, always follow Jesus, Dick. You'll have a great life. I'm a little, I'm 10, I'm a little awkward. Eight years later, I walked onto that Christian college campus, met a tall, sandy-haired, green-eyed girl by the name of Ruth, who turned out to be Roy's eldest daughter. I didn't know he had, I thought he only had Jimmy. I had no idea <laughs> he had a daughter. When I married her, I, I asked for her hand in marriage. I said, but my parents on marriage is coming apart and I'm nervous. I think it might be genetic. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, Dick, why don't you just love Ruthie and Jesus and Opal and I, my wife, we'll, we'll love you, walk with you, be okay. I trust you. Someone sometimes can say something affirming that changes your whole life. We've been married 54, 54 years and so far so good, you know. Here is a, and then later I worked with him and then sometime later after that, we went to Washington, D.C. in 1993 and it was, a, it was a strange thing we were going to. It was behind the scenes. It wasn't public like this. It was one-on-one -on -one with people in leadership encouraging them in faith. He said, you need to go, Dick. You need to go. And uh, he was my age. Six months later, we get a call. Said uh, Father Blake, we called him. Father Blake died in his sleep in the night. Went out for his memorial service. He never had a church larger than 400. There were 1,000 people at the memorial service, the guy from the feedlot, the guy from the gas station, the guy, the farmer, that he just, he heard their stories and he loved them where they were. Came the end of the service, 13 grandsons sitting on the front row. Early that morning, Mom Blake had gotten up because Father Blake was a pastor, but he was a farmer at heart. He wasn't a good farmer, but he loved being out on the tractor and the peach orchards and stuff said, any of you want any of granddad's old greasy caps that people had given him? We all took hats. And uh, comes the end of the service. During that service, somebody stood up and read 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. Don't keep records of wrongs. Didn't say anything. They just read the love chapter and said, that was Roy Blakely, and sat down. Would to God somebody could do that at my memorial service. The boys are sitting there, all the grandsons, 13 from 7 to 29, and when it came time to carry their granddad's body out, they stood up, reached down under the pew, put on one of those old greasy caps, just wiped everybody out. Still wipes me out. It's been 24 years. The little boys followed the casket out. The big boys were carrying it. They slid it in the back of the hearse. Somebody said, we're going past the old home place on the way to the country cemetery. Spring was just coming to that part of California as we drove out 60 cars from the family following the hearse. When they got to the corner of Carver and Ladd Road where the old home place was, the, uh, the hearse slowed perceptibly like dipping a flag to a fallen soldier. And when they did that, the second car with the boys in it started honking their horns. And suddenly, 60 cars are honking their horns. And suddenly, the windows came down, and the old greasy caps came out the windows. And the boys started shouting, Granddad, you did it! Granddad, you did it! 
And suddenly sun rubs her back and hankies are waving and cheers are ricocheting out through the orchards. And I'm saying, what did granddad do? What granddad did was to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and love his neighbors, i.e. grandkids, as himself. And he left their fingerprints, his fingerprints on their souls. Those 23 grandchildren will never get over it. They will never get over their granddad or the Jesus that he followed because he loved them like they did. He prayed for them. He said affirming words to them. He took actions toward them, and he took actions toward their world. I believe, I don't know how it's going to work in heaven when you show up or I show up, Lord willing, but maybe there will be a whole line of angels saying, Sally, you did it. Jose, you did it. Come on. Good on you. It's great to see you. We got a party going on. Come on in. That's how it is. Love each other the same way I've loved you. Remember, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for one's friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your spirit at work among us. For the one who sits here today and says, you know, I don't feel like I have anything to offer. By your Holy Spirit, drive deep into their soul that they have their story to offer, and in that there is life. We love you. We stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name, amen.